Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. You're listening to Working, a show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and I'm back this week with another episode in our series about those who work in homelessness services, helping societies most vulnerable. Last week, we learned a little bit about the world of street medicine. This week, we're going to be talking to a psychiatrist who works with people experiencing homelessness. Specifically, I spoke with Joanna Freed, who is a psychiatrist at Janian Medical Care. I talked to her about what it's like to work with patients who often have severe mental illnesses or addiction issues, who also live in just the most unstable possible circumstances. And you know, how she has to be creative in how she tries to think about treatment and uh, helping these people get through the crazy bureaucracy is required to find your way back into housing once you've ended up homeless. If you have not listened to the second episode in this series about the social workers of the street outreach team, I recommend you go do that. Because in that episode, we talk a little bit about how the housing process works, what goes into it, what a housing packet is, and the psychiatrists at Janian also play a really important role there. It's all sort of integrated. I think it helps you to kind of understand the system if you listen to the two together. If you have listened to that episode, I hope you enjoy this one. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Joanna Freed, and I am a psychiatrist for people who are experiencing homelessness. And so I have a couple of roles. I work for an organization called Janian Medical Care, which provides psychiatric and primary care services for people who are homeless and formerly homeless. And my particular gig within that is that I'm the medical director of the Manhattan Outreach Consortium, which is the street outreach teams that work with people in Manhattan who are sleeping on the street. And so you're seeing patients as well as organizing or how does what exactly is your role in the scheme of things? Yeah, so I have a clinical role. So mm-hmm. two and a half days a week, I spend seeing patients, working with clients of the outreach teams. I don't really consider them patients until they're like agreeing to be in treatment with me, but I do see all the clients of the outreach team because mm-hmm. in order to get a housing packet together in New York City, you need to have an evaluation from a psychiatrist. So that's my role on the outreach teams. And then I provide ongoing treatment if somebody is interested or willing. So how many people are you seeing in the course of a week? Oh, that's a really good question. It can vary pretty radically when people show up. It can be, you know, it's very low volume because it takes a lot more time than sort of like a traditional sitting in a clinic seeing patient after patient. So in a typical day, if everybody shows up, I might see like two or three people who are brand new to me for evaluation And then I might see two or three people for ongoing follow-up and treatment. Um, That would be like a typical day. And on any given day, there's like, you know, 30% of the people won't show up for their scheduled appointments. That's that's the sort of uncertainty, I guess. It's part of the job. I'm I'm really interested in what you just said about people agreeing to treatment and how they're not a patient until that moment. But I want to kind of roll back to the beginning, which is how, how do you end up 
in this particular line of work? What what made you decide to go into being a psychiatric professional for the homeless? Oh my goodness. So tell me your origin story. I'll tell you I'll tell you my whole life story. Yeah. I <laughs> so I was like a sort of non-traditional, I'm wiggling my fingers in quotes, um, medical student in that I didn't go to college thinking I was going to be a doctor. And so I didn't do anything pre-med. So I graduated college. I had like sort of this vague idea that I wanted to participate in social justice in some form. Mm -hmm. And so sort of flaked around and tried a bunch of different stuff and then had a sort of... What did you try? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, I moved to San Francisco and worked for like an educational nonprofit. Mm -hmm. I came back to New York and like tempted at a big like securities firm and then like took a year off and traveled in Southeast Asia and then came back and still had no idea what I was doing. And then finally, I had this medical event myself where I had a a ruptured thoracic disc in my spine and it was sort of a very acute event and ended up with like this, you know, needing to be rushed to the hospital and have emergency surgery. Mm. And something about that event kind of like triggered like oh, wow, like, look what's happening. You know, I'm in the most vulnerable, sort of helpless, very scared place ever. And there are these amazing people around me who are sort of like putting me back together and taking care of me. And I mean, it was a little overdetermined because both of my parents are physicians. So (laughs) I'm not going to say it came out of nowhere. It's like, you know, they say like genes have to be sort of triggered. Exactly. It was a little epigenetic moment. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. And so from that point onward, I sort of did a post-bac program and took all the pre-med classes. And then I went to medical school. And in medical school, it sort of came down like, you know, in medical school, you try everything. You sort of rotate through every possible service. Yeah. And um, it really came down to me for like to to like psychiatry was by far the most interesting thing that i did you know there were similarities in terms of people's the presentation of people's illnesses but every presentation was still so sort of like independent and unique and required like a different kind of problem solving yeah and so i really liked psychiatry and so i decided to do my residency and so i did a residency at nyu and at nyu you work at bellevue you work at the va you work in like the public hospital system in a really significant way and it was like very clear to me that that's what I wanted to do I wanted to work with severely mentally ill people I wanted to work with people who were sort of really disenfranchised and my last year of residency I applied to do the public psychiatry fellowship at Columbia which is like the greatest gig in psychiatry you can have because you have a year after residency where you have like a real job in the public psychiatry world but you have two days a week where you are in class with these other, like, nine other really amazing new psychiatrists with a faculty of people who are sort of, you know, at the top of the public psychiatry field, and they bring in all these, like, amazing speakers. And so during that year, I had my two days a week where I was, like, in the ivory tower, and then I had three days a week where I was going to have to find a job in public psychiatry. Yeah. And my friend Christina was like, oh, you have to meet my supervisor, Van. He runs this thing called PPOH, and it's amazing, and you would really like each other. So Van took us out to Korean food for lunch, and I was sold. I was like, I want to work for this person. And that was, um, and that's how you made your way. And that was it. So yeah. th- this was your first real job, essentially. Yeah. And how many yeah. years ago was that? Ten. Ten years ago. And yeah. Going, can I ask, what was it, or what is it, about working with the severely mentally ill the people in that condition that was appealing to you or drew you in? I mean, I think that it's... Often people who are sort of suffering the most acutely, which is not to say that people with sort of more like less severe mental illness don't suffer, but it's often people who are suffering the most and who have the least access to 
treatment and to help. And also so many of our tools are kind of blunt instruments. And so you have to be pretty creative in terms of thinking about how to treat somebody with schizophrenia or really severe bipolar disorder. Um, What do you mean by blunt instruments? Like our medications work, but you know, they work only some percentage of the time and they all carry a pretty heavy side effect burden. And, you know, most of the data shows that like some combination of treatments is usually more effective than one. And so, you know, you're not just kind of like, I'm going to give you an antihypertensive until your blood pressure is normal. You're like, I'm going to give you an antipsychotic, but maybe we should also like think about some talk therapy or maybe having a job, maybe supported employment would be something that would help. And with the people that I work with now, you know, housing is very much part of sort of the treatment plan for everybody because, you know, it's ridiculous to treat someone schizophrenia if they're sleeping on the sidewalk. I mean, it's not ridiculous to treat it, but it's there. There is no complete treatment for schizophrenia if somebody is homeless. I I feel like that actually kind of brings us back to that that point I, I, I paused on before, which is how someone actually becomes your patient. So, when you first see someone, how do they, you said the, the outreach team kind of brings them to you or you go to them. How do you first encounter someone who could become a patient? Yeah. So I, I'm i very like integrated in this team, yeah. right? And so the team has the people on their caseload or people who they're hoping to put on their caseload. And they'll involve me at sort of some point along that process. And sometimes it's early on where it's like, you know, we are having trouble engaging this person and they're ambivalent about like whether they want to work with us or not. So like maybe meeting with you would also sort of like Mm -hmm. be another way in. More often what happens is, you know, the teams are definitely sort of pros at engagement Mm -hmm. and like they, I really, I learn a lot from, from their approach. And so more often what happens is they will be like, this person's on our caseload now and we're working on a housing packet. And so we're bringing them to you for a psychiatric evaluation. And the reason for that is because there is supportive housing in New York City, and a lot of people who are street homeless are street homeless because they either have serious health problems, serious mental health problems, substance use disorders, usually some combination of the above. And so people are qualified for various kinds of housing based on what they're living with. That's interesting. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? How does the mental health condition they have dictate what kind of housing they can get. So people who are considered to have serious mental illness are eligible for supportive housing in this particular category. Um, and so, you know, the the OMH, the New York State definition of what serious mental illness means mm-hmm. is, you know, a mental illness that impairs your functioning in several domains. Mm-hmm. In my mind, if you, you know, don't have housing yeah. and it's in some part due to your mental illness, then that's, you know, enough to sort of say this person is significantly disabled. And when you say supportive housing, how does that differ? What exactly does that mean? Like what what is supportive housing versus regular housing? Or Supportive housing is housing in New York City that was built under uh, an agreement called the New York, New York Agreement. There's no sort of standardized definition of what supportive housing is exactly looks like, but basically what it is is it's housing with services attached to it. Mm-hmm. And whether those services are like you all, you live in a building of supportive housing units and there's case management and medical services on site, or whether that's you're in an independent department, you know, in a building like a general rental building, and the services come to you. But it's it's units that are set aside and that are subsidized I see. by and, the city and the state. And so in order to qualify for that, they have to have a medical record and a mental health record. And you're part of figuring out exactly what their condition is and whether – is there – do you feel pressure at all? I mean, like when you've got a, a client coming through and your determination about their mental health, that has a big impact on where they 
end up living? I mean, does yeah. that, is that in the back of your mind ever? Like, okay, like if you're dealing with an edge case or you're thinking about a, a diagnosis, like how this is yeah. going to impact their future? Yeah, it's it's a real it's a really good question. And yeah, I mean, it's true like, you know, the it would be great if everybody could qualify for, you know, affordable, safe, supportive housing because, you know, most people could use a little extra help in some area, but there's an incredibly limited supply. And so, yeah, but the, there there is, you know, I wouldn't say like the teams pressure me to diagnose people so that we can fit them into a certain housing stream. But I will say that, yeah, I'm like very aware of sort of like how my evaluation is going to kind of play into their housing prospects. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this long enough that I sort of like have some understanding of the housing system. And so I know what might be a good fit for somebody. And I also Mm -hmm. know like, okay, like, you know, I'm not clear what is causing this person's difficulty or I'm not sure whether this person meets criteria for for mental illness, but I can think of like a few things that we could do to sort of help clarify it. Or, you know, maybe we can think of like this, you know, the team is going to think of an alternative housing stream, like maybe we'll be able to get this person a voucher. So it's not like unless I diagnose somebody, they're not going to get housed. But it certainly it certainly is in my mind when I'm meeting with somebody. And it, you know, it it speaks to sort of like It also speaks to, like, I don't want to participate in a system that's, like, pathologizing people's very normal responses to very abnormal circumstances, right? So That's interesting, yeah, because these people are under extreme stress to begin with, and you have to figure out how much of that is actual mental illness versus what a normal sane person would do in a crazy situation. Exactly. And a lot, you know, the vast majority of people we meet have experienced, like, a tremendous amount of unspeakable trauma, whether Mm -hmm. growing up or whether during incarceration or whether the course of being homeless, like, and, you know, the, uh, the impact that trauma has on sort of on your brain is is substantial and far reaching. And so, you know, sometimes something can look very much like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And actually what it is is sort of like what has been an adaptive response to trauma in somebody's life, but it's no longer adaptive when they're trying to sort of work within the system. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Coming back to when you're meeting folks for the yeah. first time or you're yeah. kind of assessing them, are you are you going out to them ever? Or are you kind of joining the outreach team or are they coming to you? For the most part, they, they come to me. Okay. And the office that I work in is like a really nice office space and people come in and we can like make them a cup of coffee and yeah. it feels professional. And so I really kind of prefer to offer that to people if they're Mm -hmm. willing to do that. But a lot of times people aren't ready to do that or aren't willing to do that. And so I'll go out in the field. The first housing evaluation I ever did was in Marcus Garvey Park, either Marcus Garvey or Morningside Park. And Mm -hmm. it was with this older man who had been living in a cave in the park for two decades. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And had finally, like, agreed to talk to the outreach team and meet with them. And so they brought me out and he and I sat on a park bench and I was like, oh, this is my dream job. I'm really excited to be doing this. Mm, and yeah. um, 
And so, yeah, if we if we need to go out, we'll go out. How did that conversation end? Did you guys get him a housing packet or how did where did he end up? Yeah, he um, he got a housing packet. He got housed. I mean, so what we do is we like the outreach teams move somebody inside very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, and we have we have to places, a shelter or something along those lines. We have places that are sort of outside the traditional shelter system, because if somebody is chronically street homeless, mm-hmm. they've already made it very clear that they're not going to the shelter system. Right. That's mm-hmm. why they're outside, because in New York, you have a right to shelter. Mm-hmm. So anybody who wants to be staying in a shelter is staying in a shelter. So people who are outside, like the city, very wisely recognize like that these are not people who are going to be able to sort of redirect into the shelter system. So we have like safe havens, transitional beds. We have a mm-hmm. block of beds at the YMCA. And so we can get somebody inside like, you know, within a few days of getting them on caseload. Yeah. And then from there, work on permanent housing. You're talking to a guy who's who's been living in, like you said, a cave for 20 years. I mean, that is as extreme as as you're going to get, I imagine. I know you can't talk about that patient specifically, but I mean, how do you, in an extreme case like that, how do you begin a conversation? Where do, what are you talking to someone, you know, generally about? How are you trying to feel out their their situation? I usually open up the conversation by being very clear about what our meeting is about and that I'm a psychiatrist and that this is sort of because you're working with the team on getting a housing packet together. You know, that's like my role is to create one piece of this stuff that goes into your housing packet. So I'm like very clear about sort of like the frame that we're working in. And a lot of times people have had like really negative experiences with the mental health system. And so I sort of try to be clear that like, you know, the the point of this meeting isn't to sort of like treat you against your will or send you to the hospital. The point of this meeting is to sort of work on your housing. And then I usually start out by sort of asking people to tell me a little bit of the story of, you know, how they ended up without housing or what their, you know, whether they ever had housing and what that looked like. Um, that's usually sort of the way we start the conversation. If somebody is really sort of, you know, ambivalent about talking to me at all or really kind of not interested in talking to me at all, I'll, I'll kind of try whatever it takes. You yeah. know, I'll ask him about, you know, sports or the cave or, you know, his shoes or I don't know. Just make conversation. Yeah. It's just I guess you're you're just trying to establish a relationship at that point. Yeah. I mean, are there tests that you're eventually going to do to say, OK, does this person have skin? schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I mean, is there a point where you're saying, okay, I have to go through sort of a rubric or when does that come into play? You know, with some people, a lot of that is kind of like observational. If somebody's like incredibly disorganized and like, you know, Mm -hmm. saying things that sound like pretty significantly delusional, you know, I probably won't go through the checklist of like diagnostic criteria. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, do you experience blunting of, I just will sort of, you know, it'll be a more observationally based diagnosis. But yeah, at some point I usually do kind of with most clients, I like will ask them, like, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced, you know, these signs and symptoms of depression or mania um, or Mm -hmm. psychosis or anxiety? And, you know, it's it's it sort of gets to the heart of like psychiatric diagnosis in that, like, this is a really different way of doing that than if I were working in a hospital or an emergency room where I have at my disposal the ability to sort of rule out any potential medical 
contributor to this, right? So I'm generally not able to get blood tests on somebody or head imaging. I'm generally not able to get like past records or speak to somebody who knows them or speak to a past provider or test them to see if there's like some substance that might be causing them to sort of appear psychotic. And so it's a really different process that that I learned sort of working in a hospital-based system. It's just purely observational, I guess. Or are there other, is there anything else besides just conversation you have to go on? No, I mean, sometimes we can get records if somebody will consent to that. Sometimes we can look up somebody's, you know, past Medicaid use history. Sometimes, you know, we do have a street medicine team attached to outreach and they're amazing. So sometimes we can, you know, work with them to sort of work up a a medical rule out. But generally, none of that is going to happen in that first meeting. And I'm usually sort of having that meeting and then writing an evaluation. And I sort of, when I do that, like, so writing an evaluation, like documenting this Mm -hmm. encounter with somebody is a sort of specialized skill that I think, you know, it's taken me a decade to kind of get. Well, I was going to say, how did, you know, when you were first starting this job and you're kind of working with like the most minimal amount of tools possible in the field or with your patients, how did you adjust to that? I mean, I always was like, I always was much more interested in sort of like the actual interaction and hearing somebody's stories and sort of, you know, thinking about how to characterize what I was seeing than I was in sort of like an academic, like, you know, rigorous approach to like, you know, here's the world of what could be going on with this person. And I'm going to like figure out exactly, you know, what particular name in the DSM we're going to call it. So I think it was sort of a good fit for me. I think I could tolerate the uncertainty because I think maybe my overall philosophy about psychiatry is that like it is in many ways a very a field that's very about uncertainty and about discovery and so I think I think it just worked for me. I was okay with it. The stereotype about people on the street is that they're crazy, they're yada yada, you know, I mean, you hear it all the time. What percentage of the people you see would you say really do have a, a severe, you know, kind of mental illness? Since you see basically everyone who needs a housing packet, I mean, they all come through you at some point. Well, I'm, I'm, I only work with two of the teams. There, there yeah. are right now eight psychiatric providers. There are yeah. four, four teams just in Manhattan alone. But so in, I don't in see your, everybody. In but your, on your corner of the beat. On and my it, corner of the beat, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what, what would you say, like ballparking? Like how, how many really do have a severe mental health problem? Oh, my goodness. It's really hard to say. I would say that by far the majority of people have some sort of mental health condition. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say a very, very high proportion of people have post-traumatic stress disorder or some sort of manifestation of complex trauma. And then I would say, yeah, the majority of people have a mental health diagnosis and or a substance use disorder diagnosis. Yeah, some combination of them. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty unusual that somebody has neither of those. So one or the other is probably yeah. going on, and that's, that's... Usually both, yeah. Usually both, yeah. interesting. And so when somebody becomes your patient, is your goal managing those illnesses or is it really getting them into supportive housing and kind of getting them to the next step? Or is it both? What I guess, what is your role at that point once they're they're your patient? I mean, it's the team's job to house them. Yeah. So, and I'm a member of the team, and so I have a role in that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not the one who's sort of, you know, calling housing providers or making sure their packet gets to the place where there's a vacancy. 
it's really variable and the way treatment looks in this setting is really different than like, you know, treatment in clinical settings is like somebody is either coming to you for treatment and in treatment or they are not, right? Yeah. In this setting, people kind of like come in and out. You know, there's people on the outreach teams who I've known for many years who, you know, will get locked up and then come back out a few years later and come in and see me for an evaluation and then maybe see me for a couple sessions and then maybe decide they don't want to. And so it's very fluid. And so I sort of think of it as like, you know, these like series of treatment encounters with people. You know, what I'll say is like, if somebody is interested in treatment and I think they'd benefit from treatment, or even if they're not interested, if they're ambivalent about treatment, I'll say like, you know, do you want to come back again and we can talk some more about what some options might be for treatment for you? And sometimes I'll try to sort of focus on the thing that maybe seems to be giving them the most distress or the thing that seems to impede their ability to get housed the most. Mm -hmm. I try to be just kind of like very flexible in that. And so sometimes people will, you know, meet me for an evaluation and then come back like one or two more times and then, you know be off to do other stuff. And then sometimes, you know, there was there was a guy on one of my outreach teams who I was seeing almost every week for supportive psychotherapy, couple of like brief medication trials. He wasn't really that interested in medication, but we were meeting for like two years. Oh, wow. Does that happen frequently or is that? No, it yeah. doesn't happen frequently. It, is it more the kind of one to three meetings and that's it versus the the two-year patient? No, I have I have some people on the caseload who I've been seeing pretty consistently like while they have sort of endured the housing process, which can take, you know, mm -hmm. take a long time. And I have some people who I'm currently seeing who are permanently housed, but who sort of need the additional level of support. And so we hang on to them a little bit longer. And it's hard for me, like sometimes the team has to be like, listen, we really need you to sort of like figure out the next step for this person's treatment, like because he's filling up time in your schedule, he's been permanently housed for a year, he can handle going to a clinic. And sometimes I have trouble letting go because, you know, I just I know the sort of public mental health system and I know that like nobody's going to have the flexible frame and the amount of time and the sort of ability to tolerate uncertainty that I do, right? So when I, I refer somebody to a clinic and they miss three clinic visits in a row, they get a letter from the clinic saying, you know, we're discharging you from the clinic. If you want to re-engage in treatment here, you have to kind of go through the intake process again. Oh, that's really interesting. So you have to feel a little bit of concern about someone being ready to go to another provider. Ready and also just like knowing sort of, you know, the state of yeah. public mental health in the city. Like, you know, I am incredibly privileged that if I want to see somebody for two years every single week for supportive psychotherapy, like I have a job that allows me to be able to do that. A lot of times if you are a psychiatrist working in a clinic, you have 15 minute appointments all day long. You're prescribing. They are seeing somebody else for their therapy. And, you know, I understand why people are under those constraints. Yeah. Um, it's because the system sucks. But it's not constraints that I'm under. And so sort of passing somebody along to that system sometimes feels really hard. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It seems like there are kind of two parts of your job in a way. It's like you have the, the housing evaluations, which are, you have to do that. That's like the, that's kind of the core thing that has to get done. And then you have sort of the more flexible treatment aspect of it. Is that like is that a good way to break down your job? Sort of like the if if I'm trying to just simplify for or a listener wants to simplify, is that sort of is that kind of the the two poles of it, or would you say there's another aspect? There's a couple more aspects. One is sort of like an advocacy piece, where yeah. even if like somebody is not coming to see me or like my quote unquote patient, but you know I am following this client with the team, and they are you know they got rejected from this housing opportunity, and the reason that the housing provider gave is that they lacked insight into their mental illness. And sometimes we might push back against that because lack of insight is actually a symptom of schizophrenia, and so sort of like using that as a reason to not accept somebody who has schizophrenia is actually mm-hmm. inappropriate. And so sometimes I'll sort of get involved on like these systems level things yeah. to sort of advocate for people. I also do like a fair amount, like as a psychiatrist for a team, I do a fair amount of like, you know, either informal or formal, like sort of in-service teaching kind of stuff. So the team, the teams that I work with are great and like super familiar with kind of mental health diagnoses and working with people in patient-centered ways, but sort of giving people more tools to sort of understand mental health issues and understand how to approach them or understand how to sort of help people with harm reduction Mm -hmm. when they have substance use disorders. So I do a lot of kind of education and training. And then in my sort of leadership administrative role with outreach, I'm sort of involved in kind of some of the more big picture stuff when it comes to the medical and psychiatric care that we provide for outreach. Are there medications that you, if you were in your private practice, you would prescribe, but because someone's homeless and might not be able to take them consistently, that they're just not really in your in your toolbox? Definitely, yes. Can you give me some examples? Sure. I mean, I, I had a small private practice for a bunch of years, and I definitely, you know, had m- more at my disposal. So medications that are, that maybe have a street value or are more abusable, I might be less likely to prescribe. Oh, interesting. Like, kind of like average. Xanax or exactly, something. Exactly, like benzodiazepines. And medications that require blood monitoring, like until somebody is like inside and we're going to be able to like, you know, get blood tests, I would be less likely to prescribe. How much does that limit your toolbox? A fair amount. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's interesting to me because like you said before, when it comes to diagnosis, you have fewer tools. You don't have all of the hospital, you know, bells and whistles. Right. When it comes to treatment, you have to sort of work with a limited palette, fewer tools. And also for follow-up, at the same time, you have to get people through a really difficult system Yeah, in the worst circumstances. Like, I imagine it has to be like a minor miracle when it actually works. <laughs> right? Like, I guess. But I think like going back to what I said earlier, like it sometimes feels like, OK, like, you know, we have less at our disposal in terms of kind of like you know, pharmacotherapy, or we have less at our disposal in terms of being able to consistently get somebody in for appointments. But we have so much more at our disposable in terms of like flexibility and being able to sort of like honor, you know, how somebody feels comfortable working with us and being creative. And, you know, like, again, like if I were in a clinic where I was seeing somebody for 15 minutes and writing them a prescription, I feel like I would have so much less at my disposal. Like, okay, yeah, I could prescribe them medication that they have to get weekly blood tests for, but I couldn't sort of talk to them about, 
you know, their family or I couldn't sort of like go in the next office and be like, oh, he's really interested in a job. Can we hook him up with like our employment program or, you know, like it would be I feel like that would be so much more limiting. How often are you prescribing medication? Um, Pretty often. I mean, that's tricky, though, because once someone's on medication, they they have to manage it. Right. And you're only seeing someone you said maybe three times often, sometimes, not always. But I mean, how does that work? How do you once you get someone on meds, how are you making sure they're taking them or how they're progressing if they're working? So a lot of it is just kind of like weighing the risks and benefits. So if he takes this antipsychotic three times a week, is that better than him not having any treatment at all? And often the calculus on that is like, yeah, I would rather he, you know, be taking this three times a week and be less psychotic those three days because he'll be able to, you know, not tank his housing interview or he'll be able to, like, go get his benefits turned on. So sometimes it's recognizing that, like, it's not going to happen perfectly and being okay with that. Other tools that we have are there are long acting medications that people can take via injection once a month. And so we try to, you know, encourage, if people are interested, we try to encourage people to do that because they don't have to, you know, keep track of a bottle of pills, remember to take them every day. Um, Often people staying on the street, their stuff will get stolen or if they get arrested, their stuff disappears. And so that's a really sort of nice way of taking away some of the exigencies of what somebody's dealing with on the street. So we do some long-acting injectables. And then often I, you know, I'm really privileged to work with this organization that has providers in like every step of the way along the housing process. So often somebody will move into a safe haven where there's another Janian psychiatrist and I can be like, oh, you're going to see Megan and she's going to be able to continue your medications. Or you're going to a safe haven where they can like help support you in taking your medication. And so they'll like do pill boxes with you or you can like go down to the office and take your meds and sort of like figuring out the best way to sort of help somebody get the best treatment. It's not always just on you, I guess, as part of it, is there is a network of professionals at the nonprofit who can kind of, you guys can kind of tag team or work together yeah. in, in the best cases. Yeah. How often are, are you prescribing something and, and you're pretty sure it might not work out just because their situation is so erratic? I mean... If somebody's interested, if somebody's like, yeah. I, and it's often not somebody who's like, I have schizophrenia and I want treatment for it. It's often like, I can't sleep or like, mm-hmm. you know, I keep having panic attacks whenever I try to take the subway or like sort of these targeted things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll start something like an SSRI that's like, you know, pretty low risk and that if they don't show up again, I'm not going to sort of be laying awake worrying about like, you know, mm-hmm. what are they going to do about not getting their SSRI next month? I guess how optimistic are you is, is sort of my question is like, are there points where, you know, you're, you're kind of doing you're not sure it's going to work and just kind of you hope? Yeah, I think I think you have to be that way to practice psychiatry because I think, you know, as I said earlier, our medications are often like pretty blunt tools and our diagnostic practices often like, again, like a little bit blunt. And so I think you have to like have a certain amount of faith and ability to be optimistic in the face of that. You're dealing with treatments that only have a percentage chance of working, and then you're dealing with patients who, on top of that, have the worst circumstances. You're layering challenge on top of challenge. There are, like, a lot of leaps. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the ability, like you mentioned earlier, the ability to do this job is really, for me, you know, based in the fact that, like, I am not doing it on my own. If I were, like, in a private practice doing this, I would have burned out and, like, gone to work for a pharmaceutical company or insurance company eight years ago. 
I think having like feeling like I'm very much part of this network of providers and also part of this outreach team is what makes it possible to kind of like tolerate the uncertainty and the disappointment and, Mm -hmm. you know, just how much suffering there is kind of around us all the time. This is maybe going to be a, a dumb question, just like me not knowing how the system works. So kind of a naive question, I guess, let's put it that way. But if you encounter someone who's deeply mentally ill, really in a bad state mm-hmm. and possibly danger to themselves, they're not making progress through housing, they're just on the street. Is there anything you can do? I mean, what if you think this person is really in danger to themselves, something around them? What mm-hmm. I mean, is there any way you can intervene or what do you do at that point? So, you know, we really... You know, some of like the kind of catchphrases of of this kind of work are being patient centered or client centered and being recovery oriented and being non-coercive and sort of like working in this very flexible frame. But you're absolutely right that like sometimes these illnesses are so severe or people's, you know, symptoms get so bad or their substance use is so out of control that they really are unable to care for themselves or they really pose a danger to people around them. And so in those circumstances, we, you know, the psychiatrists who work for and, and psychiatric providers who work for Janian and the um, outreach teams have the capability to do a few things. One is, you know, we use 911. We will call the ambulance if we really think somebody's, you know, a danger. And the other thing is we have something that's this legal, this legal designation that's part of um, mental health law where we're designated to be able to do what's called an involuntary removal, mm-hmm. which is just the worst phrase. But if somebody with that capacity, so it's either a psychiatric provider or somebody who's a licensed social worker, determines that somebody meets the criteria, which are, you know, danger to themselves, danger to others, or inability to care for themselves, you know, appropriately, and that's because of a severe mental illness, then we can sort of fill out paperwork and direct EMS to take them to the psychiatric emergency room of our choosing. Yeah. And we really try to sort of be very thoughtful about not using that unless it's really kind of the last resort. You're basically hitting the panic button at that point. Yeah, exactly. The panic button with a lot of paperwork and like, you know, negotiation and finagling. How, and I know I'm I'm asking you to kind of describe like a worst case scenario, but that feels like, I mean, you have to feel a lot of responsibility when you're you're making that call. How do you, how do you make that decision? What's the process for deciding, okay, it's, it's time to really essentially get this guy, I guess, temporarily committed is the way to put it, or sent to the emergency room. Right. I mean, all it buys somebody is a trip to the ER. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's still, you know, doing something against somebody's will. I mean, I think if... If we have sort of given everybody, somebody every opportunity to kind of participate in that process and like, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to think of sort of like some recent examples. So somebody who is like unable to care for themselves because they're so psychotic that they are wearing, you know, a T-shirt and flip flops in a snowstorm mm-hmm. or somebody who we've watched sort of, you know, their medical situation, you know, th- their leg wounds get worse and worse and worse. And, you know, offered them opportunities to sort of get it looked at, had our street medicine team try to work with them, and they're just unable to manage it. Or somebody who's sort of like threatening, you know, that they're going to harm themselves or who we really sort of believe there's a high risk of them acting on on what they're saying. Um, any of those circumstances would be a time when we would probably go ahead and do yeah. Do a 958. Is there, is there sort of a, a group of people who get together at the and say, you know, it's like a conference or is it some, a call that you can make unilaterally? 
I mean, it's much easier if I have yeah. sort of help. So usually it's something that we sort of talk about. And it's usually something that we sort of plan out. I mean, if it, there's like a really acute situation where somebody's in the office and really agitated and being very threatening, we wouldn't take the time to sort of you yeah. know, do the paperwork and do a removal. We would just call 911. Is that something that happens? Yeah, less less often than you would think, but it does happen. I feel like this might be like kind of a rude question, but, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who see the homeless as dangerous, right? They're like, you know, it's like, oh, it's a crazy person again. Mm-hmm. How often do you see someone who's actually a danger to others? Not not often. I mean, yeah. I think that there I think that that sort of people who are, quote unquote, like very visibly homeless get sort of tagged as, you know, either dangerous or insane mm-hmm. or, you know, or somehow other. But the truth is, I think that. I mean, statistically, sort of, if you look at people with mental health diagnoses in general, they're much more likely to be targets of violence than perpetrators of violence themselves. Mm-hmm. If I think about homeless people, you know, the things that are going on are generally less to do with people's mental health conditions and more to do with either street life or substance use or money mm-hmm. or, you know, that sort of it's not sort of because of somebody's delusions that they're getting yeah. into violent altercations with people. It's because somebody owes them money or because, you know, somebody took their stuff or, you know, it's yeah. more the stuff that doesn't have to do with yeah. mental health issues. Your patients who you see over a longer period of time, I mean, you do like some essentially talk therapy, right? Or do, yeah. what do you end up talking about with those patients? What comes up? It's really variable. So a lot of times it is sort of like the day to day. It's like tolerating like struggles at the safe haven. It's sort of like problem solving about how to sort of not allow your symptoms to, you know, interfere with your ability to do this housing interview well. It's about, you know, working around substance use, like how to sort of decrease substance use and how to kind of think about like what the triggers are and what some ways to sort of use more safely are. It can sort of be like really that kind of like day-to-day moment-to-moment stuff. With people who maybe I'm I'm getting to know better and people who I'm spending more time, you know, doing talk therapy with, we might get into stuff like, you know, if it's something that they want to talk about, we might talk about stuff that happened in their past or we might talk about relationships in their life or sometimes we end up sort of talking about somebody's delusional material. And if it's something that's really fixed for them, sometimes we'll work within like, OK, like, so how do you continue to kind of like move forward towards this goal that you have, whether that's housing or reconnecting with family or getting a job while you're sort of dealing with the stress that you experience because you believe you know, the FBI is after you or the safe haven's putting poison in your food. How often do you get people who have delusions on that sort of level? Oh, pretty often. Yeah. I mean, and you're having to help them navigate a bureaucracy when they're terrified of, I mean, I guess that's a pretty classic mental health situation, right? Like you're, yeah. you think like the dark force of like a bureaucracy is out to get or like some uh, like kind of Kafkaesque scenario there. Someone's out to get you and you're at the same time having to navigate like city services to, to get a home. Right. Where like, you know, maybe it's benign incompetence that is like causing these things. Or maybe, like you said, it's like the dark forces of evil that's causing this thing. But the end result is that, you know, it is a really hard system to navigate and it can it does not feel like a benevolent place to be in most of the time. And so if you're predisposed to thinking like, you know, having these delusions, that it's just going to fuel them or that has to be such a. Right. Oh, God. Because a lot of psychosis is like misattribution, right? It's like you're not wrong about kind of like the overall scenario. You're just like, you know, creating a different story about it than what, you know, my understanding of the story is. Are you pushing back against that or are you just trying to, like, you you said sometimes it's just helping people deal with 
the system in spite of what they believe about it. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, in general, sort of pushing back against delusions is not an effective strategy. Working with somebody who's like acutely psychotic or like really sort of has like a formal thought disorder, which is the fancy word for, you know, believing something that's probably not true. And so, yeah, pushing back against the delusion is not usually effective, but joining with somebody in the things you can join with them about without sort of like, you know, you don't have to lie and say, I agree with you that there is a chip in your tooth. But, you know, you can sort of say, okay, let's, you know, we can agree to disagree about the chip in your tooth. But the end result is that, like, you feel like you're really being monitored every moment of the day. And so you feel like you can't say anything out loud. And so how do we sort of get you to a place where you can answer questions in the housing interview with this chip in your tooth and still be able or with what you think is a chip in your tooth and still be able to sort of, like, answer those questions adequately so that the housing provider is, like, going to give you an apartment? That's problem solving. It's like, okay, we have, we're not going to cure these thoughts. Right. It's how do we make sure that you can get into a home in spite of them, that you don't self-sabotage accidentally. Exactly. And I think like that, again, is something like, that's a reason like I'm a really good fit for some of this work is because a lot of times like, you know, my instinct is to like jump in and and problem solve. And, you know, in the bigger world of psychiatry, that's not actually often the most effective therapeutic intervention for somebody, right? Like helping somebody get the tools to solve problems themselves is what ultimately you want to do. And in your case, you're you're hands on say, okay, we need to get you to this next step. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure. Right. How do you solve, like, just to take that problem where someone thinks that everything they say is being monitored and they they don't want to talk? I mean, like, what would be your go-to thing, like, to solve that problem? I mean, I'd hope they'd take a little bit of antipsychotic so that it might take a little bit of the edge off of that that particular delusion. But, yeah, if they didn't want to take any antipsychotic, then I think... Yeah, we would sort of talk more about, like, how do you take the strictures that you're working within and sort of still get what you need to get in order to sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, meet the goals that you have. And I'm not, you know, I don't mean to sort of, like, make it sound like Mm -hmm. it always works, right? We have people who are really, really, really persistently delusional who it takes years and years and years and years even just to, like, you know, I can think of a particular client on the CCS team who it was years before we could get him to agree to like get an ID card, like years and years and years. Like he just, he didn't want to do it. He was kind of working with his own special powers and abilities. He didn't want to participate in that system. Yeah. So after, you know, probably like eight or nine years, someone finally, like, I don't know if he just, you know, it wore him down enough or somebody sort of had a different approach or what changed for him. And he finally agreed to do that. And he finally ended up, he's like in an apartment now. But it was many, many years and none of my interventions were effective with that particular How did case. that feel on your end? Like, I mean, that has to be a little bit maddening. I don't know. I, I think I don't take it personally, I guess. Yeah. And I also sort of feel like, okay, like this is like I'm not being successful here. And, you know, whether that's because of my own limitations or because I'm not the right fit for working with this person, whatever it is. But, you know, thank goodness there's six other people who, you know, somebody mm-hmm. and that's what happened. You know, one of those six other people was the right fit or did have the right approach. Whereas, again, if I were in my private practice, like... You know, I think I would maybe take it a little bit more personally or feel a little bit more lost in that situation. It's not all just on you, though. Is there a point where you ever stop seeing a patient where it's like, okay, you were officially handed. Like you said, you you brought up you kind of recommend them to a clinic or something along those lines. But before then, is there a point where you kind of hand them off to a colleague or something or. Yeah, I mean. 
you know, I think so my time is incredibly limited yeah. and I do need to be sort of seeing people for these evaluations so they can get housed. And so, you know, sometimes I'll be building up this treatment caseload and it'll get like, OK, we can't get somebody in to see you for this evaluation. Like what's happening with treatment caseload? Um, and so, as I said earlier, like sometimes they'll need to like, you know, the team will gently need to sort of help me understand that like some people are probably ready to be seen less often or to mm-hmm. move on to a new provider. When I can, I love handing them off to people within our system because I can do a really good sign out. I really trust my colleagues. I know they're going to be able to sort of like have the same approach and philosophy that I have and the same understanding of where somebody's coming from. So a lot of times we're able to house people in permanent supportive housing where my colleagues work. So they have the psychiatrist one day a week who happens to be, you know, and Megan. And so that's the ideal situation in my mind. But then also, yeah, and, you know, I, I, I feel like I've slammed, like, the public mental health system a fair amount, and it deserves slamming. But, like, the actual individual people within it and some of the clinics that we work with are wonderful and sort of, you know, there are some great people working in those systems. And so I sometimes sort of – I have my little toolbox of resources for when I really want to make sure somebody lands somewhere good. You you know, okay – that psychiatrist at that clinic might be able to handle my patient. Or, exactly, yeah. And you can pull strings to get them there? Or? I mean, sometimes, yeah. Or yeah. even just knowing, like, I can get that person on the phone to really explain this case to them and, like, really give them a background yeah. and let them know what has worked. When you do hand someone off to one of your colleagues in supportive housing or whatnot, yeah. do you kind of keep tabs on them ever? Do you, like, ever go, like, hey, how's, oh, yeah, how's Tom totally. doing? Totally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And having been at Janian for 10 years, you know, we're in like every setting possible within this kind of within Mm -hmm. the housing spectrum. And so I've worked in every setting that we have. Like I've worked in uh, with street outreach and I've also worked in shelters and I've also worked in soup kitchens and I've also worked in permanent supportive housing. So, you know, there are people like I sort of I know where people are going or where people are maybe coming from. And I also, you know, have people who were my patients in supportive housing for five years who I, you know, I left that site, but I still check in with my colleague about like, oh, how's so-and-so doing? Is there something about your job that I haven't asked you about that you think people need to know? I feel like this is like a little either soapboxy or a little like maybe dry and technical, but I think one thing that I have found really challenging, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of psychiatric illness and, you know, psychosis and people with really persistent symptoms. And one another part of our job that I think is equally important is treating people's substance use disorders. Yeah, you you Um, brought that up as sort of the other half that you see. Yeah. I mean, how do you? One one of my jobs as in the leadership position is that I we have a quarterly sort of incident review meeting where we talk about like, you know, all the serious incidents that have happened within Manhattan Outreach Consortium, and that includes deaths. And, you know, this this last meeting, we had an unusual number of deaths, and many of them were opioid, related to opioid use. And it's something that I think, you know, reflects what's happening nationwide. Have you been seeing that creeping up over time? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, we have we have some tools to sort of either help people use more safely or help people reduce their use or even stop using if that's what they want. But there are so few ways for people to access those tools within this system. Yeah. And so I feel really good about the fact that we can sort of provide like a low barrier way for people to access them. But I sometimes feel so frustrated by how many barriers there are 
everywhere else to accessing them. And so like taking a life-saving medication like Suboxone shouldn't be that hard. And yet it's incredibly hard. And even like sort of the public... And Suboxone is just... Suboxone is a medication that people with opioid use disorder can take to replace the heroin. And it's a daily medication. It's It's similar to methadone in that it triggers your opioid receptors. It's different from methadone in that you can get a prescription for it and take it on your own instead of having to go to a program every day. You said it's extremely difficult to for people to get access to it? It can be, yeah, because you a doctor needs a special waiver. You have to do a special training and get a special prescription waiver in order yeah. to prescribe it, as opposed to opioids, which any doctor with a license can prescribe. And so, you know, I recently learned that, like, within the public hospital system, like, a very low proportion of providers are wavered to prescribe buprenorphine, which is, you know, this life-saving medication for this epidemic that we're in. And so... That's been one of my sort of like the things I've been thinking about the most recently and one of my real sort of frustrations. For a, a normal psychiatrist, the the goal is to, I assume it's either to manage symptoms or, I mean, does a psychiatrist ever really cure a patient's symptoms? How often does that happen? Is It's more managing them, right? I think it depends. I mean, I think, you know, what we know about, and again, I think we're talking right now about like serious mental illness, yeah. right? What we know about serious mental illness is that there is probably like a much higher rate of recovery than maybe we fully understand. But because we define it certain ways and because we don't necessarily follow people longitudinally the way that we maybe used to be able to, we don't necessarily always see those outcomes. You know, I think there's a fair amount of recovery that goes on. And I think, you know, particularly when you're talking about somebody with these symptoms, but who has these symptoms in a particular context, which is that they're sleeping on the street and so constantly in danger and incredibly sleep deprived Mm -hmm. and having to focus on kind of their immediate needs instead of like anything bigger, where they're constantly getting, you know, their PTSD triggered by being in that circumstance, where they're maybe using substances either to sort of help cope with some of these things or because, you know, they have cravings to use the substances, you know, from a chemical imbalance. And when you sort of are able to sort of like help remove somebody from some of that context, I think like I have often been really surprised like how different somebody looks in a different context. And what I was saying earlier about like how somebody behaves in like a really inhuman, insane scenario does not necessarily kind of define how they're going to be once they're in a place that a human being should be in. Well, this is what I was wondering, and you sort of got to it, but how often do you see someone who has one of your patients actually recover? So recovery is sort of defined in this, like, that there's this, like, concept called recovery in psychiatry Mm -hmm. that is not necessarily about sort of, you know, going from having a lot of symptoms to having no symptoms, but it's it's this sort of, like, process-based definition that's like sort of about somebody getting to a point where they're, you know, functioning in these various ways that they weren't able to function previously or where their symptoms are under control to the extent that they, you know, don't distress them as much. Mm-hmm. It's like a very individualized definition. And so I don't mean to be mealy-mouthed about it. It's a continuum, though, it's sort a, of like... Yeah, exactly. It's a continuum. And so I've seen it a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I've seen people who I was like, boy, this is like really one of the sickest people I've ever seen. And they get inside, they maybe get on Suboxone so they stop using so much heroin or they get on a medication that helps them drink less and all of a sudden they are taking care of themselves and their face looks different and they can have like these coherent conversations and it's 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 very humbling to sort of like realize that like a lot of this has nothing to do necessarily with you know treating their psychosis and so much of it has to do with like what this whole team and this whole system is working on which is like taking them out of this situation which they are having 
this particular reaction to. Thank you so much for coming and chatting. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, if you did, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or send me an email at working at slate.com. Again, that is working at slate.com. Show is produced by Justin and Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm Jordan Weissman. Catch us next week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.